We're going to turn to the scriptures together now, and we're going to turn to the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. Our reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and you'll find our reading on page 993 of our Pew Bibles, page 993 of our Pew Bibles. Uh, We've been working our way through 1 Timothy at our morning services recently, and uh, we're coming towards the end of the series and looking at the first part of chapter 6 this morning. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning our reading uh, at the end of verse 2 and reading down to verse 10. Page 993 of the Pew Bibles, 1 Timothy 6, beginning at verse 2, and this is God's word to us. It says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As a church family, over the past few months, we have been looking at this New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, We're nearly finished this series. Uh, Next week will be our final week on 1 Timothy. Uh, This morning we're looking at chapter 6, verses 2 to 10, and you'll find that passage on page 993 of the Pew Bibles. Uh, We live in a world that thrives on discontent. We live in a world where there are lots of unhappy people who are searching for something to content them. In our world, people make money out of other people's discontent through advertising, celebrity gossip, makeover shows. To a certain degree, we all lack contentment in our lives with what we have, how much we can get, what we do, with who we live with, what we're like, and what the future promises. We all lack contentment in some way or other. The constant hunger for something more may seem like the aches and pains of growing old, something we have to put up with in this broken world. But the Bible also tells us that discontentment is the symptom of a lethal disease that will kill us if we don't find the cure. It was after discontent that first led, after all, discontent that first led Adam and Eve into rebellion against God with catastrophic consequences. In his book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges has a chapter on discontentment, and he writes that the most frequent warnings in Scripture against discontentment concern money and possessions. What he does, though, is write about discontentment more broadly, and his target is a common form of discontent among Christians, an attitude that may be triggered by unchanging circumstances 
that are trials to our faith. He gives some examples of unchanging circumstances. An unfulfilling or low-paying job, singleness well into midlife or beyond, inability to bear children, an unhappy marriage, physical disabilities, continual poor health. After listing just a few circumstances that might cause discontentment, Bridges says this, he says, whatever situation tempts us to be discontent, and however severe it may be, we need to recognize that discontentment is a sin. Even if we know God as our loving Father through Jesus Christ, one of the greatest struggles in the Christian life is fighting the temptation to be discontent. The stakes are really quite high. A discontent Christian will be a negative influence on other Christians, a poor witness for the Lord Jesus, depressed and resentful towards God and, and distracted from the gospel. Ultimately, discontent in the church leads to false teaching and loss of faith. But the Lord Jesus promises that anyone who believes in him will never hunger or thirst again. The Apostle Paul was able to say that he had learned the secret of being, con be being content in, and in every situation, in need or in plenty. And in this part of 1 Timothy, Paul addresses the subject of contentment. What we have in this section are keys to finding contentment. And before we look at the keys together, let me say a word or two about where we are in this letter. We nearly finished it. Last time we were in 1 Timothy, we covered chapter 5. And we saw Paul's vision of a flourishing church. A flourishing church treasures relationships, cares for the needy, honors leaders and keeps them accountable and makes the gospel more attractive. Now, as Paul begins to bring this letter to young Timothy to a close, he returns to the subject that he began the letter with. He returns to the problem of false teaching, and what we have in the first part of this last chapter are the consequences of false teaching. But the big heart issue that Paul addresses in verses 2 to 10 is contentment. As we're going to see, the false teachers in Ephesus were totally discontent, they were not happy people. And while, Paul says, and while what Paul says here was addressed to them, it's also addressed to us. We know in and of ourselves that we can be very discontent. We know in and of ourselves that there are times when we are not at all happy. 1 Timothy 6, 2-10 tells us how to find lasting contentment. It gives us two keys on how to be content. Here are the two keys. First of all, don't mess around with the truth. And secondly, don't put your hope in something that won't last. We're going to take each key in turn this morning and think about this, this passage and think this issue through. Our first key then is don't mess around with the truth. This has been one of, of Paul's, Paul's themes in this letter, the, the importance of guarding the truth of Christ and the gospel. If you watch any kind of crime drama, be it Line of Duty or Silent Witness or anything like those programs, You'll know what crime scene analysts do. They come in with their white suits and they forensically analyze the scene of the crime. They take the evidence away. They take some photographs. They begin to build a body of evidence for the police. In verses 2 to 5, Paul forensically analyzes the false teachers. And what he, what he highlights is their teaching, their character, and their corruption. Look, 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 look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, 
Here Paul analyzes the teaching of the false teachers. They are teaching different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's quite an astonishing accusation because you would assume that people who are teaching in a church would be teaching something that agrees with Jesus' teaching. Sadly then, just as nowadays, that is not always the case. In very simple terms, the false teachers were not in line with the sound words that originated from the Lord Jesus. Jesus repeatedly said that he is the focus of the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. In Luke 4.22, we're told that people marveled at the gracious words that were coming from the mouth of Christ. The same could not be said of the false teachers in Ephesus. Their teaching was not in line with the teaching of Jesus and therefore the teaching of the apostles because the teaching of the apostles is based on the teaching of Jesus. The false teachers were, were messing around with the truth. And this led to them being ungodly in terms of character. Remember, remember Paul is, is taking the false teachers apart. Look at what he says about their character in verse 4. He says, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He is an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. The false teachers are conceited and understand nothing. Conceit just means to be proud, to think that you are someone. Another translation changes the word conceit to pompous ignoramus. Paul hints that the false teachers are like this in chapter 1. In one seven, he says that they desire to be teachers of the law, but that they don't understand what they're talking about. They have zero spiritual understanding because they are rejecting sound doctrine. As well as being conceited, they also like an argument. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Sometimes Christians can, can battle over the meaning of very small details in the Bible. We're looking at, at Daniel in our evening services at the minute, and, and Christians have thought about, have fought over the, the meaning of certain parts of the book. When you, when you crave controversy and word battles and fight over those kinds of things, you're spiritually sick. The teaching of the false teachers has led them to have a defective character and it has also brought corruption. Within the church family in Ephesus, the false teachers have brought the following results. Look at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Not a lot of fun. This is why Paul is, is so concerned for Timothy and for the church family in Ephesus. Timothy is having a tough time with these people. They're messing around with the truth. It's having a devastating effect on church life. Now, our context is very different, but, but what is this teaching us? It's teaching us something that we've seen before. There is a connection between what you believe and how you live. We've seen that over and over again in 1 Timothy. What you believe is directly connected to how you live. In verses 2 to 10, there are at least four different references to the gospel. Paul uses these different phrases to help us realize that we shouldn't mess around with the truth. He calls the gospel sound words in verse 3. He mentions the teaching as well in verse 3. The truth in verse 5 and the faith in verse 10. His point is that when we begin to, to toy around with the truth, to, to play with it, 
to take bits out that we don't like, to water things down, to fight over small details while ignoring the big doctrines, we're moving to a very dangerous place. We shouldn't mess around with the truth. Instead, we should place it at the center of our lives and live in light of it. God's truth is health-inducing and is good for us. That's the first key then on how to be content. Don't mess around with the truth. The second key is this. Don't put your hope in something that won't last. Don't put your hope in something that won't last. The second half of this section brings us to very well-known and regularly quoted verses. As well as all of the things we've talked about, the false teachers were also making a lot of money with what they, from what they were doing. Do you see how Paul says that they were imagining godliness is a means of gain at the end of verse 5 there? The false teachers were making some serious cash. There's an American preacher called Kenneth Copeland who is a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. He's someone who teaches the prosperity gospel, which is that God will bless you materially and physically. Prosperity preachers teach that the atonement of Christ includes not just the removal of sin, but also the removal of sickness and poverty. Now, we know that's not the case. We know that's not sound doctrine. But Kenneth Copeland has made millions from this teaching. He apparently has a net worth of $760 million. He has private jets, luxury cars, lavish houses. The false teachers in Timothy's day weren't quite at the same level, but where there is a desire for something, there's always a market, and they were exploiting that. Paul says, though, don't put your hope in something that won't last. He says, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. The gain here is, is not financial, it's spiritual. Paul separates financial gain from contentment. That's because he knows that the pursuit of material riches is empty and futile. In Ecclesiastes, the writer informs us, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Contentment is linked with godliness. It's, it's found not by, by putting our hope in something that won't last but instead by putting our hope in something that will. In writing to the Philippians, Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and, to, and I know how to abound. In every, any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. We may become shirtless and shoeless and even homeless, but if we have Jesus' life and his godliness, we will have enough, we will be rich. But birth and death provide the bookends for us to look at material wealth properly. Look at verse 7. It says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. John D. Rockefeller was an American businessman who was born in 1839, and he died in, in, in 1937. He's widely considered as the wealthiest man in American history and the richest person in modern history. When he died, his aide was asked how much he left behind, and the man wisely replied, he left it all behind. Richest man who's ever lived. How much did he leave behind? He left it all behind. That truth is as old as the Bible. Job said at first, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Ecclesiastes 5 again, this time verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil, 
that he may carry away in his hand. We have a a possessionless entrance into this world in that we come with nothing and we have a possessionless exit in that we take nothing with us. In that like greed, greed for Christians is irrational. It makes no sense at all. And Paul says as much in verse 8. He says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If we have more than just food or clothing, then we should rejoice. Real contentment and material prosperity have nothing to do with one another. We shouldn't put our hope in things that don't last. But Paul hammers home this point with, with verses 9 and 10. He spells out what happens to people who live for money. That, that they're plunged into ruin and destruction. And then he reminds us, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's a simple proverb, which means that greed is a trap for the rich and the poor and everyone in between. The danger is that we read it and say, well, that isn't relevant to me. But you don't have to be rich to fall for greed. This can wreck the faith of believers. The gospel and greed are mutually exclusive. They don't go together. It's as Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. Don't put your hope in something that won't last. Real riches involve a life wrapped up in God. The problem the false teachers in Ephesus had was that they were living for material things. But in doing so, they were totally discontented. They were very unhappy people. In verses 9 and 10, you get a sense of how bad things are for them. They're being senseless. They're involving themselves in things that are harmful. But worst of all, they have wandered away from the faith. They didn't find their contentment in the Lord, and that left them discontent. Jerry Bridges, who I mentioned earlier, had a difficult life because he faced physical disabilities, but he also had to go through the pain of, of, of losing his first wife. His first wife. After his first wife died, a friend sent him a card which said, Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, relinquish what you take. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, relinquish what you take. That, that, that is a prayer of a contented, God-focused heart. That is the prayer of someone who is not putting their hope in something that won't last. Contentment. Do we have it? Are we searching for it? The, the, the two keys to contentment in this passage are don't mess around with the truth and don't put your hope in something that won't last. It's really quite a penetrating section, isn't it? There's a sense in which we are all living for something and, and searching for meaning because we live in a world of discontent. But as one Christian has said, our hearts will be restless until we rest in God. There's lots for us to think through here if we're believers. We need to make sure that we know the truth well. We need to make sure that we're reading the truth as it's found in the scriptures. We need to make sure that we know the gospel, that we can articulate it to ourselves and also to others. And we also need to examine our hearts and and ask ourselves regularly, even daily, what am I living for? Am I putting my hope in something that won't last? There's also a lot for you to think through if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Verse 7 is is so challenging for you. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. What that's saying to you is that nothing the world can give can be added onto us. 
You can't add to yourself through anything the world can give, whether it's money, prestige, titles, power. All you need for life in this world is food and clothing. The thing that is most precious of all is your soul. That's quite a remarkable thought. Something you cannot see is more precious than anything you can get in this world. And that just doesn't come from 1 Timothy 6, 8, 6 verse 7. It comes from the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what he once said to his disciples and to a crowd of people? He said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Something you cannot see is more precious than anything you can get in this world. So the question for you this morning, if you're not a Christian, is what value do you place on your soul? What the Bible tells you is that God wants you to be really rich, not in material terms, but in spiritual terms. And he has shown that because Jesus became poor. It's as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let me finish in this way. It's nearly always the case that billionaires want to live forever. The owners of Amazon, Google, and PayPal have all invested in groups that attempt to extend people's lifespans. Why is it that so many billionaires seem so intent on extending their lives beyond the promised three score and 10? Could it be that all their wealth has made their life so amazing that they simply can't bear the thought of dying? Could it be that their massive yachts, their luxury mansions, their ability to buy whatever their hearts desire has given them such satisfaction that they want to enjoy it forever? Do you know, it's not likely to be any of those things. It's probably not that their lives are satisfying, but are instead utterly dissatisfying. In a short space of time, you can accumulate great wealth, but what you'll eventually find is that there, there are some things money can't buy. Here on earth, we count gold as the most precious, uh, precious of possessions. But what the Bible tells us is that in heaven, it's used to merely pave the streets. What we count as supremely valuable here is, is, is trodden on underfoot. We stand on it in heaven. What we count as supremely value, valuable is nothing in heaven. So, so many people, even Christians, live their lives to accumulate what heaven counts as meaningless. We so easily put our hope in finding contentment in what we can take and earn, what we can have and hold, but we will go the way of all the earth one day and one day we'll drop into eternity and nothing the world can give can be added on to us. The only thing that will matter when we drop into eternity is whether or not we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Savior who became poor so that we might become rich, in the Savior who gave of himself on the cross, also that we might know and love him and live for him and be content in knowing him. The Lord Jesus promises that anyone who believes in him will never hunger or thirst again. And the, the ultimate key to finding true contentment is trusting in him. First Timothy 6 also reminds us that contentment comes when we don't mess around with the truth and when we don't put our hope in something that won't last. What, what is contenting you this morning? Where, where have you placed your hope? 
For we brought nothing into the world and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. Something you cannot see, something you cannot see or hold is more precious than anything you can get in this world. What use is it in gaining the whole world yet forfeiting your own soul? Nothing the world can give us can be added onto us. That's why trusting in Christ, if you haven't already, is the most important thing you can do today. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning, we confess that our hearts are discontent, that we often don't find our rest and hope in you. But we thank you for this reminder that our hearts can only find true contentment and lasting peace when we look to you. Father, help us to pray that prayer. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, lack what you withhold, relinquish what you take. Help us to be content in what you have given us in this life, but also help us to come to rest in Jesus and to know that, that, that trusting in him is the most important thing that we can ever do that there is more value on our soul than anything else in this world. Lord, help us to look to you in these days. Help us to look to Christ and to trust in him. And we pray all these things in his saving name. Amen.